we'll begin to welcome in our, our viewing and listening audience, I guess, if you want to call it that at this point. Uh, thankful that Berea Baptist Church has let us have uh, the Podbean feed, and for some, this might be the first message they've listened to in quite some time on the feed, uh, as, as they've it's kind of gone dormant over the last few months, so I want to welcome anybody who might be listening in that regard. Um, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. This is a message I had laid out about a month, month and a half ago, as we started a series on the church, uh, and I didn't make a big deal out of it being a, a series, but we were looking at the the idea of the church and, and how it was laid out, and my intention was to follow it up the, immediately the next week with part two, uh, which what we look at today, the purpose of God's church. Uh, and then I thought, well, we'll take it to the mission last week. Uh, and then the Lord changed that as well. It's always good to give everybody a little inside baseball. The message that was the one that I canceled out of the services last week is this one, and it must be because it was meant for us here today because uh, the Lord hasn't given me yet another message to replace it with. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 20 is where we get our text. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. This is uh, speaking to the idea of religion and sacramental atonement and practices to earn the merit of God. He says, I don't need these things. And if you think about it, what is it that we, the created, have to offer the Creator? What could we give Him that He couldn't have already given or provided for or even just thought the need out of existence of on His own? He says, when you come to appear before me who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. It is iniquity, he says. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. It is interesting that this is in Isaiah. This took place before the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes even existed. The Lord said he was full of this. He was exhausted of this. He didn't require this. And you, you know how much further they went with it, how much further we go yet today. The requirement's the same. Listen to what Isaiah writes here. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And of course, that last verse there, uh, those last few words, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it, it is more than just Isaiah saying the Lord spoke these things. It is also that what we see later in the New Testament, that the very words from the Lord's mouth are as a two-edged sword, and they cut right to the marrow. And he's going after it here through Isaiah, his messenger, 
That here is what is most important. Cleanse yourselves. I mean, we think, if you think about it, it sounds so elementary. Cease to do evil. What does God want if he doesn't want all these religious things, these uh, sacramental things? He wants you to stop doing evil. He wants you to cleanse yourself. He wants you to repent, beloved. He wants you to be a part of the program that he had laid out by his son <coughs> through his son's ministry on this earth. What did his son accomplish? Well, quite a bit. What we're studying here today is the church that he had started. What we see in our afternoon studies through the Lord's ministry is that same thing. But he also said these very same things. Cease with all these practices. Remember what he told the Pharisees. You have like the key to all these things. And not only do you not share it, you do not use it. You have trained yourselves in a pattern of tradition, thinking that that gets you closer and closer to me. Well, what we see in the news right now, what we see happening in Israel right now, there is no tradition for that. There's no sacramental atonement or practice to prepare us for that. What prepares us for what's happening over there is God's Word. Amen. That ephod that we talked about this morning, that portion of Psalm 119 that we talked about this morning, all of these things put on Jesus Christ. To do that, we have to do all these things. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings. But from, from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Think outside yourself, he says. Repent and do away with all the stuff in the past. Put on the armor because what you are called to do is ahead, not behind. Useless before the throne <coughs> is the sacrificial blood of animals to pay for our sins. There are no more crosses. There are no more altar tables for sacrifice. God says here that our sins have been washed from the sticky scarlet mess that we have made, leaving us as white as wool, as white as snow. And we are to rejoice. Amen. He's the sacrifice. And the sacrifice has been made by He, the perfect high priest. We had nothing to do with that entire event except putting Him there. We were there with the crowds, were we not? Crucify Him. Crucify. Think about your most sinful acts. I don't want to say sins, the most sinful things of the past because we still sin. But in those acts, we also cry out, crucify him. It ought to bring a tear to our eyes every time we've let a slip of the tongue, all this wicked fire that we cannot control. We also cry out, crucify him because we made it necessary. Every time we hurt another for our own gain, every time we think an evil thought, we also think, crucify him. Crucify him. God then says, if ye be willing and obedient, willing and obedient to the things he confesses there in the text, ye shall eat the good of the land. Psalm 110 verse 3 says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Jesus told Peter the purpose he had for him. If Peter was willing and obedient and loved the Lord as he should, what was his purpose? Feed my sheep. The church is to do three things. And everything's really encompassed in these three things. The church is to evangelize, the church is to baptize, and the church is to catechize. And we'll discuss each at length. First, the church is to evangelize. These are the purposes of the Lord's church. Turn in Ma uh, to Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Very familiar text, but it is the Great Commission. And anytime I reference it, I like to try and encourage folks to turn to it. We ought to wear out this set of pages. These are our commandments. 
This is our commission. And we have a job, and we, and, and the, and we hear the boss is coming down the hall, let's say, and he's coming down, and you want to understand what it is that you've been required to do, your SOP, as we call it in the world, your standard operating procedures. What are the expectations of my job that he can hold me accountable for? Well, it's right here, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Because evangelize simply means to preach. The church is to preach. The church is to evangelize. And what do we preach? Look at verse 16. The eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Notice they still worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Brief rabbit trail. Verse 19 is not like what Jacob's sons did to the Shechemites. He's not saying in verse 19, go ye therefore and teach them religion. Teach them the signs of the cross. Teach them how to acknowledge what man has established since my son's death. That's not what he's telling us here. He's saying teach them Everything you've been taught, what we refer to as the Baptist distinctives, but truly are Bible distinctives. There's no other book like this. There's no other man like God, because there is no man but God that has the power to do what Jesus did. 100% God, 100% man. No one did what he did here. He doesn't say, I have most of the power, but there's a couple other people it was given to. He says, I have all the power in heaven and in earth. I have established and made possible, and I will be with you always. These are very powerful verses here. And what is the purpose? For us to preach. Who was Jesus speaking to? Verse 16, the church, the 11 disciples. And this commission was given multiple times, and there were many others that had heard it, more than just the 11. But he was talking to, we see it in the text, the 11 here. Paul says, as, as I mentioned, this wasn't the only time it was delivered. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul gives us a, a, a scenario in which this was delivered after he was buried and rose again. And he says that uh, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, which means they're still living when Paul wrote this writing. But some are falling asleep, or fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of the, all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And that's where we saw in Acts at the Damascus Road event. And, and I have a, a series we'll probably go into after this that really chases down all the events that Paul's referencing here. But this is our proof that this commission was so important that not only did the Lord himself deliver it, but, you know, he rose from the dead and he came back and gave this message over and over and over again. You tired of preaching the gospel yet? Well, our ensample came back over and over and over again to make sure that we knew we were to go and preach over and over and over again unto all nations those things which he taught. He was also speaking to the church for all time. Look in that text again. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. So not only was he talking to that first church that he established and built, but he was talking to the church for all time. Remember, that his ministry was in time, but he himself was outside of time. Amen. 
This is why his words yet live before us today. Think about the insurmountable amount of oppression that Jews and the Christians have faced, and yet this book is still here. And we, we you know, go back and forth with one another about the translations and all that, but this could have been, and probably should have been by the attempts of man and Satan, extinguished years ago. They say that the reason the Bible is omitted from the bestseller listing is because it would be the bestseller still to this day. The amount of sales of this book in particular. I'm glad they took it off the bestseller list. It doesn't belong there with that filth that's usually there. Who were they to preach to? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What were they to preach? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, all things Jesus. We heard it on our Sunday school lesson. We are to teach all things Jesus because that is what we're required to put on. This corruptible must put on the incorruptible. This mortal must put on immortality. How could they do such a mighty work? How could the church truly preach? Keep in mind the cover-up of Jesus' resurrection just took place in the verses before this and is still reported in this manner until this day. It blows my mind. If you read there, let's start in verse 11 of Matthew 28. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things which were done. I like to think these are probably the same chief priests that uh, when Judas Iscariot said, I've made a mistake, I I shouldn't have been a part of this, tried to give the money back, and they said, what is it to us? And they cast the money back to him just before he bought Potter's Field and hung himself. I like to think these are the same chief priests. They keep trying to bury this Jesus person. They keep trying to stop this evangelizer, this preacher. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Hmm. Hmm. Saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole Jesus away while we slept. They gave a large amount of money, even in that day, to the soldiers to say that they failed at their job and fell asleep and the body of Jesus was stolen. Kind of sounds like something that would happen in 2023 with a Hunter Biden involved in it. But this happened right here before the commission. So we say today, how could they go and teach these things? Beloved, conspiracy existed way before 2023. It existed right here. And then they say in verse 14, and if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. There are still a multitude who believe that this was just a man who was a teacher because of this lie there. Also because the truth hasn't been revealed unto them. But this method or, or, or uh, this entanglement, this lie was allowed to uh, exist way back in the beginning. How could they preach? Because all power of heaven and in earth had been given unto Jesus. And he has, for the purposes of his will, declared that he will be with the saints always, even unto the end of the world. What is he giving them there? He's not just giving them a to-do list. He is charging them. That's what this commission is. When a, when a, when a church ordains a man, I remember my ordination uh, back in 2017. The church gets a charge. Usually there's two preachers that will preach. So one preacher will preach the charge to the church, Another preacher will preach the charge to the pastor or the man who's being ordained. 
you ever think that it's hard to sit under a sermon you feel like is just for you, have the title actually be just for you. It's as uncomfortable as it sounds. But it's important. A charge, a power, a commission, a responsibility is given here. And it's coming from the one who has all power in heaven and in earth. And he is endowing it or bestowing it upon the church. This is not playtime. This is not just get together and have a good laugh. This is a heavy responsibility that sits upon all of us to preach God's word. And listen to the other things that we read there in Isaiah. To wash and make ourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do will, well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, Isaiah says. Acts 26, verse 16 through 18. We read the following. Acts 26, starting in verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Who's talking here? Paul is reciting his salvation experience here to King Agrippa. And he says he was told to rise and stand for Jesus appeared before him to make him a witness. That is each and every saved soul in this room. That charge, those beautiful verses in Acts 26, 16 through 18, rise, stand upon thy feet. All the power of Satan falling at the feet of God. This is the charge that has been granted unto each and every one of us. Think about Paul here is not afraid to tell King Agrippa. Or as we said of the three Hebrew children, he's not careful to answer King Agrippa. There is a greater power than you, King, he says. And he has bestowed upon me a responsibility to preach the gospel unto the Gentiles, to preach hope unto the hopeless, life unto the dead, a healing unto the sick. What was the purpose of him rising and standing? It says to be a witness. A witness proclaims what they'd seen or what they'd heard and how they were impacted by it or how they feel about what they'd seen and what they heard. That used to be how journalism was done, if you recall. Uh, and even in my own lifetime, they used to interview people and play the entire interview. What did you see? How do you feel about what you saw? Now it's usually spliced up to fit the agenda that they have, but that's how it used to be. Have you shared your testimony lately? Have you told somebody about seeing or hearing from Jesus and how you felt about it, what was changed by it? This is the charge unto the church to evangelize or preach. You have a powerful message. I don't have your testimony. You do. I can't go preach other people your testimony. Well, I was a Catholic schoolgirl and the gospel, that doesn't work coming from this face. That's your story. That's your testimony. And the people you will give it to are people I may never meet. Are people who may never trust me, but they know you. Secondly, the church is to baptize. And we probably think, eh, this is pretty obvious. 
listen as we go through this. This is the purpose of the church. To baptize means to dedicate. And we do so through picturing spiritual work that was done on the repentant believer. True scriptural baptism has four components. Proper authority, proper candidate, proper mode of immersion. And we'll get into that fourth in just a moment. Proper authority, beloved, is not the pastor. It is the church. I want to make sure if we ever get to fill this tub that we understand that I can't just choose to baptize somebody. It is the authority of the church that votes in favor or against of baptizing an individual and then you charge me with the authority or the power to go into those waters and baptize someone. Without the authority of this church, I'm just taking an awkward, lukewarm bath with somebody. Oh, I hope it's lukewarm. (laughs) And that's it. It is not the pastor, the preacher, or the deacon, though they've been ordained. It is the church. The authority to baptize a committed and obedient saved person was given to the church as we see in Matthew. If a church does not have proper authority, which is a familiar battle that we've been going through, it was never a church. And those submitted under the water were never truly baptized. That was the danger of the accusations made toward us earlier this summer. Secondly, a proper candidate Ezekiel 11 verse 19 says, I will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart of their flesh and will give them an heart of flesh. Does that happen in here? The same two hearts that go in those waters come out. Salvation doesn't happen in the tub. That stony heart is replaced with one of flesh making you a proper candidate to submit for church authority by the method of baptism. Salvation is of the Lord and its workings are personal and they are effectual. They do something. It doesn't just lead to a, the same life you had before, but more happy and more peace. There are certain verses the whole world knows, right? Peace un, unspeakable, unexplainable, unknowing, undefinable. They know those words too. But to truly have that peace changes your life. 2 Corinthians 3.3 says, Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. It's not just some spoken words. It's not some platitude. It's not some attitude, beloved. It is a real, effectual change. If the candidate is not saved, then again, it is an awkward bath with another man in that water. That's all it is. Thirdly, a proper mode of immersion. The proper administration of baptism is full immersion into the water as it signifies the new man nature of a believer. I believe so firmly in this that when I baptize someone, I ask for two witnesses. And they come up to either side of the the hole, the window, the viewing spot, whatever it is, and they're there to make sure the whole body goes under. Because the picture is that important. Not because someone's in there getting saved, but this is what's commanded of us. What it typifies, what it pictures is a old soul that had been completely changed. They don't come out with a dead toe or a dead uh, scalp. They are completely reborn. They have no footing in the world anymore. They are a new creature, praise God. That's what's pictured in the baptism. Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments containing an, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. If a person is not fully immersed, they are not baptized. 
We aren't to maintain a foothold in the world. We are to be fully commit, uh, are to fully commit ourselves to Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. What a glorious event it is for the church to bear witness to God's usage of a willing and obedient heart. How often has one said, I'd like to join the church, and the church and the pastor investigate where their previous baptisms took place, and they find out that it wasn't a true church of God, and they say, baptism is required. And hopefully they say it in love. That's how it should be handled. There's no commandment on the church to really handle much of anything without love. And they say, well, I won't do that. I refuse to do that. Those words, refuse and I will not, are very dangerous if the Lord has given commandment to do. Please don't think for a second that if your baptism was given under the wrong authority, you weren't a proper candidate. Or if the mode of full immersion was missing, you weren't saved at the time you, uh, that you are, uh, or that you are destined to live apart from the church. If your heart is aligned with the truth of God's word, Submit yourself to baptism today. Come forward and explain to the church something was missing of those, of those important elements, and I want to make sure that it's right. We had a baptism in Berea when we first got there of a man who had been baptized at a, denomina- a local denominational institution. I wanted to come into the church, explain to him that after investigation, uh, we believed him to be a proper candidate, but we couldn't accept his baptism. He had to be rebaptized. He prayed about it for a couple weeks and said, this is what I need to do. And when he went into the waters, another lady came forward and she said, I've been a member here at this church for a long time, but I was baptized at another church up north of here. That church has since gone off the truth and I'm worried about the authority that they may have had to baptize me. There's only one way to know for sure. She got into the water as soon as he got up. Beloved, there's no shame in that tub. Because as what we just described, a proper candidate is required to enter into this tub for it to be baptism. Which means they've already been forgiven. There's zero shame in going through here and picturing for the rest of the church what God had done in you. It is literally the first step to the commission to go out into the world and tell them what God had done in you. If we're unwilling to submit to this, then it's likely we're not going out and giving the gospel to anyone else. Thirdly, the church is to catechize. I know this sounds like a Catholic word. Bear with me. To catechize literally just means to instruct orally by means of questions and answers, studies of his word and meditation and prayer. The Catholics ruin a lot of words. This one belongs to us. Discipleship has always been a large part of the church. It's why we see Peter, Paul, and Barnabas travel back through those same cities that they first preached, so that they could confirm the faith of those who had once followed, so that they could again speak to the grace that the Lord had bestowed upon them and upon that institution or that mission, whatever it was, and that they could continue to instruct and see instruction take place of Christ Jesus. It was the commission. It was that important that Jerusalem kept sending their missionaries out to see that it was taking place. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is warning Timothy of the times and of the crowd that will bring about persecution of the believers. And he says in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. See a very important idea 
And what we would normally refer to as church succession or the mother-daughter relationship. But we see something in Timothy with, his, with, with Eunice and Lois, his grandmother, his mother, these things being passed down to him. They talk to little Timothy every once in a while about the Lord Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. That's what we're to do as well. We're to make sure this next generation understands why we're so fired up about things of God. We're to make sure that we don't just deliberate about the things happening in the world, but we expound to them here and at home why it's so important to tell my children abortion is wrong. That's a good thing. It's a good message to send. I need to follow that up with life is valuable at home and explain the power of the blood that's laid out in this Bible from cover to cover. See, our responsibility never ends, does it? There's one thing they didn't tell us back in 2006 when we were so excited that we were pregnant with Isaac and got a baby boy coming into the world. Nobody ever said that there was going to be breaks, vacations, or times to clock out. You're a parent now until you die. This is our responsibility with the commission, beloved. You are a church member now until you die. I have pastored a few churches, and every time there are some folks that get to a certain age that they say, well, it's Christian retirement time. Back east, it's awful because they become snowbirds, and you can never find them. Are they supposed to be here today? I don't know. I don't know where they're at. And it's even worse when you go down to Florida and you find all of them. But beloved, there's no retirement here. Our retirement is an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're never going to match that retirement in this life. There are still people you will reach that I cannot. I am just a young fool to the crowds that older folks would be able to reach to. I'm a guy who hasn't lived enough life to understand the realities of what they go through. It doesn't matter what I've gone through. I wear that on my face. Isaac will receive it too. He's younger than I am. But he's going to be able to reach people that will look at me and say, he's too old. How would you put it? 20-something's really old? I'm not 20-something. I'm two 20-somethings mashed together. But there are crowds he'll reach with the gospel that I won't. Now, if those download numbers go sky high on Wednesday, we'll have to talk about what you're doing right and what I'm doing wrong. But how can we witness and teach of the things of the Lord Jesus Christ to the lost? Putting on the ephod. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching God's Word. Living God's Word. There are times in which you will preach to others without ever saying a word. Because what you do and how you live becomes the first Bible they've ever read. That man there knows Jesus. How do you know? He seems to have hope while the world is falling apart. We're starting to see a very noticeable difference in this world, are we not? Between those who know the Lord and those who assuredly do not. This is only the beginning. If the rapture doesn't come relatively soon, we'll start to see the big box churches crumble because they're not set on a solid foundation. Even the biggest and strongest building, if built on sand, will sink. There's nothing holding it up. What's holding us up has proclaimed that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, there's only 12 of you, 4 of you, 2 of you. So be it. We will follow God. We'll follow nothing else. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. Possibly one of the most important verses in all the Bible. For it declares that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. 
and that all Scripture is profitable for reproof, and that all Scripture is profitable for correction, and that all Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. How important is the Word of God? How important is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? Putting on the ephod? When we heard Sunday school this morning that David put on the ephod because seemingly we might say all hope is lost. They're gathering from every direction and it's very real to what Israel's going through right now. David puts it on not to overstep his reach, but to beseech the Lord. Should I pursue? And God says pursue. We don't read there that that David had to go to a seer like Saul did a few chapters earlier. We don't read there that David inferred by checking the weather after putting on the ephod. We read that he put on Christ Jesus, he put on the Word of God, and then he asked God, what should I do? And God spoke most clearly, you should pursue. Sometimes it's pursue, sometimes it's stand still and wait and watch the salvation of the Lord. But he most definitely always answers. This is the most important verse in the entire Bible. It validates everything written in it. It confirms that this is a living, breathing, inspired word. Hear me now. We're not talking about this translation being an inspired translation. We're talking about the Word of God breathing and living. It was there at Genesis 1, according to John 1. It had been there all the time. It's there at the end. The tree of life from Genesis 3 all the way to the end. It holds great value for the believer. And it is the only hope for the world that we live in today. Paul's telling Timothy to catechize or teach with God's word for it is God breathed. It was literally designed for this purpose. It was so important. Your mother, your grandmother told you about it. They spoke of faith and they spoke of the Lord. It's so important that it is alive. It's so important that it is profitable. It is so important because it teaches us of righteousness, which we will not find here. These very words that we have to offer this dying world, they are God-created, God-empowered, God-sent, and they are God, according to John 1, verses 1 through 5. They are divine. They are omnipotent. All the things of God, as Jesus references himself as the Word, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, so is the Word of God. So is Jesus, so is the Word. God's Word shall always find his purpose in the hearts of the elect. There's a story that I heard once about the old fishing church. They had boards and buildings and etc. And they were always talking about new ways to go fishing. Always celebrating when someone came up with a new idea on how to fish better. But they never fished. They always celebrated how they could go and reach more and find more and bring them in. But they never actually went and did it. After one meeting, someone went fishing. And they caught one. And it was celebrated for ages. He was asked to come and share his methods for years. He traveled from sister church to sister church to sister church to explain to them what he did differently that worked so well. Eventually, the waters were wept over once more as no fish were being caught because everyone was discussing methods, but no one was dropping lines in the water. Beloved, we have to be an actual church that fishes. 
We have to be a church that reaches to the girls' home and the boys' home. We have to be a church that cares for the widow. We have to be a church that lifts up feeble and weak knees and hands. We have to be a compassionate church. The pond is stopped. It's time for us to securely tie His Word to the line and take it to the fish. Of all the grand plans of the politicians, even the Republican debates are revealing it. None of them are laying out a plan in which we go out and give the gospel to the lost. None of them are laying out a plan in which we repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're saying a lot of things are wrong, and they're pointing at the other guy, who's also preoccupied pointing at them. But there's only one solution. Jesus said, again, to those who would make up his church, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Not orators of how to fish. Not instructors of the importance of fishing. Not crafty salesmen convincing the world that fishing is good. But fishers of men. You know what fishers of, of fish? They get wet. They get dirty. They get cold. They get tired. Fishers of men ought to as well. That's where the men are. That's where the women are. That's where the lost are. I don't know too many fishermen that would tell you they never got wet when they brought in a great catch. Especially these fishermen. A lot of times they had to get into the water to help hoist that net up into the boat. They didn't succumb to the water, but they had to get in it. Leave your nets, your selfish desires on the banks. Let us straightway follow the Lord Jesus who modeled for us how to fish. He taught us all that we ever will need to know about how to fish. Think about the blind man. Think about Bartimaeus. Think about the woman with the issue of blood for a dozen years. In the same chapter, somebody who was a dozen years old also being healed. The Lord went into the, uh, to the well in the heat of the day to talk to the Samaritan woman. Boy, even the disciples would have said, cast her back. She's filthy. She's unclean. If you had a need, Master, we would have seen to it. But what did Jesus say before he got to that well? I must go there. I must needs go to Samaria. I have a purpose there. Beloved, when will we witness and be the church that the Lord has called for us to be in which the world will say, why would you go there? Why would you give the gospel there? Why would you involve yourself with this person and that person? I pray we fill these pews with dirty people before the Lord comes. I pray that we fill this building with filthy sinners that the rest of these so-called churches wouldn't have anything to do with. <laughs> I love Tate Pierce. He taught me something. 